This Week at Hope Point. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, which simply means he was raised to life so that God would be able to declare us not guilty. It doesn't mean you've never sinned. It doesn't mean you're not guilty of the life that you know you live. It's just that God says, I now see that Jesus has paid for all your guilt and I will never hold you accountable. I set you free from my condemnation and wrath. You're forgiven. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. On one occasion, when I was very young in ministry, I received a call from someone on death row or from the prison that a man wanted to meet with me. And I hadn't done that before at that time in my ministry. And I didn't wasn't really sure of how I, what exactly I was going to say. And on the way to the prison, I stopped that morning at a McDonald's to just get my thoughts together. And all over the walls of that McDonald's, uh, a Christian school, children had painted pictures of the cross. And the manager allowed the children to put all those pictures of the cross all over that McDonald's. And just was one more reminder, you go tell that man that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus Christ to bear the wrath and the punishment for everything that man has done, everything you've done on Christ. And his punishment is, is over and it's been finished in Christ. And go tell him about the cross. You know, it's so simple that a child back in HP Kids can articulate it. It's so complicated that no theologian has ever been fully to explain the very essence of what we would say in this statement. I owed a debt I could not pay, and he paid a debt that he did not owe. This is the message of the cross. This is the message of Easter. In 1996, I had a large chondrosarcoma growing on my right hip, and it was a very extensive surgery to remove it at Emory. So uh, I drove to Atlanta, at least I stayed there for 10 days for all of that, and two surgeons scrubbed in on the case, uh, one was the head of orthopedics there at Emory. He was a musculoskeletal oncologist. And uh, then there was another uh, man. He was visiting from Walter Reed um, Hospital in D.C. Uh, he was a Jewish uh, man, and he was in the case. And in the months that followed and all the follow-up of something like that, I uh, got a, struck a friendship with him. And so he asked me one day, what do you all talk about in a Christian church? I'm a, I'm a Jew. You're a Christian. I don't know what you all do. I said, well, what we talk about is your Bible. We love your Bible. We love the Jewish Bible. Everything that we believe, the foundation of it is what is found in your Bible. I said, and our favorite chapter in your Bible is Isaiah chapter 53. And I told him about that. I gave him a copy of a message I had preached. And I said, this is the most important thing I would ever want you to know about me and about God. If I had one message to preach for one year and you told me I have a year to live, you get to preach around the world, I would take Isaiah 53, the message I'm preaching to you today. It's a breathtaking message that is the centerpiece of the Bible, really located almost in the center of the Bible, actually. And it, in no more clear terms, describes why Jesus Christ came to earth. He came to earth to suffer for our sins. There is nothing that should compel people to adore Jesus as king more than his willingness to suffer for their sins. And Jesus Christ is the one who suffers in Isaiah 
53. I'd like to describe this morning to you four ways in which Jesus suffered in that chapter. Number one, he suffered from the pressure of obscurity. Isaiah 53, 2 says, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Well, this is just a picture of a stump, um, a tree that's been cut down in the wilderness, barren, and you walk by that stump and you'd say, there's no, not going to be any life ever coming out of that stump. That's what that picture is. My wife and I live next door to a man who has a red, ugly fence around his pool. I'm called in life to speak the truth, so I just did that. <laughs> I, I don't really know any other way to say it. I honestly think he would agree with me, uh, but I think he would say, I don't care. <laughs> so I... I do a lot of work in his yard. He doesn't really live there. And so I, I wanted to cover up his red, ugly fence. And so in the fall of this year, I bought six um, tea olives. And, um, you know, they started pretty small. And I hope that one day they'll be 90 feet tall. And, uh, but we've had a really harsh winter. And then the spring was weird, like it froze again. And so these things have just gotten brutalized. And so this is what my little... Um, tea olive looks like. Now there's six of them. They all look just that pathetic. And you, you look at that and you say, it's not going to make it. The spring, the summer, it's, it's not going to make it. Well, that's the essence of Isaiah 53 too. You would have looked at Jesus Christ and said, you're not going to be a world changing person. You're like a stump that has no future because he was born into Israel, which was a nation that was oppressed and occupied by the strongest nation and army in the world, Rome. They were not a free people. And then inside the nation of Israel, he was born into the village of Nazareth that was not even located on a map in the Old Testament. And inside that poor little town of Nazareth, he was born to poor parents. And so you have this poor kid from Nazareth in a poor town, in a poor nation, who has the assignment of doing something that's going to change the world. I think he probably, as a kid, felt the pressure. How am I going to get to there from here? Surely he thought about how could God, how is God going to pull off this world-shaping influence from the Messiah's life when I don't have any political backing, (laughs) I don't have any financial backing, I'm just a poor kid from Nazareth. I think he felt the pressure of obscurity. Secondly, he suffered from the, a lack of physical blessings. Isaiah 53, 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We live in a celebrity culture. It didn't, obviously it exists out there, but getting just about as bad in here in the church. When I was growing up, like the, the main book on spiritual leadership was written by a guy named Oswald Sanders. I've got a couple copies out in shell space and some at home. It's just the premier book on leadership. And not one of the chapters says anything about how you got to look. But nowadays, it seems like if you got to want to grow a big church, got to get you some of those skinny jeans, you got to get a well-placed tattoo, on a pretty hefty bicep, and that's the way that you're going to draw a crowd. But your physical appearance, how cool you are. 
not for Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus was attractive to the crowds. They wanted to touch him more than the people wanted to touch Elvis. But they wanted to touch him because of the power of God emanating from his body. The purity of his words coming out of his mouth. And they knew that the motive of his heart was only one thing. When you were around Jesus Christ, he was going to tell you how to get out of sin and how to get back to God. And he could be trusted for that. That's what they were attracted to. Third, he suffered from constant rejection. The Bible said in Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men. His teachings were misunderstood. His, his miracles were abused. His sincerity was doubted. His mission was unappreciated. His glory was belittled. That which mattered most to him mattered least to them. And the people that he came to save did not want to be saved. He was constantly rejected. There's an old spiritual that really summarizes the life of Christ. It goes like this, sweet little Jesus boy, we didn't know who you was. We treat you mean, Lord, we treat you mean. We didn't know who you was. He was treated so mean for being the most generous man who's ever lived. In Mark chapter 3, his family accused him of being insane for his claims to be the Messiah. The religious leaders spread words about him that he was possessed by the devil. And people believed it. The the, when he preached his first sermon in his hometown, they drove him to the edge of a cliff and intended to throw him off and to kill him. Because they didn't like his sermon. And we can never forget that on the last night of his life, the men that he trained for three years, in the hour that he needed his friends the most, they left him. They betrayed him. Jesus Christ was a doubted, slandered, betrayed, mocked Savior. And yet, that's what makes him able to sympathize with every person who's suffering in the world. He feels pain because he's been through it all. Isaiah 53.3 says he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. I don't like suffering. Would never sign up for one more hour of it. I would much rather have, I'd much rather eat a cheeseburger and fries than prepare for a colonoscopy. <laughs> but there is a beautiful blessing in suffering in the sense that it makes you sensitive to a world that is suffering. Other people suffer, and you wouldn't have known anything about it unless you would have gone through it. And Jesus has suffered in every conceivable way that a human can suffer. He feels our suffering. You know, it's amazing. When Jesus came to earth, he could have done anything he wanted. Think about that. If I give you that license, do anything you want. I mean, he could have moved to Egypt. 
established a resort by the Red Sea and just made waves. He's done that before. He's made waves. He could have surfed every day and then eaten oysters at an oyster roast with his friends at night. That's the life he could have chosen. Total comfort. But instead, he chose to hang around the crippled and the blind and the poor and the oppressed. Why did he do that? Because he felt their pain. It's all in him. Walk into a room and feel pain. Walk through the streets and feel pain. Every day of his life was a walk to the cross. Every day of his life, he felt the weight of death. I mean, the crowds, they loved him as long as he was doing miracles and he was feeding them fish and chips. But he knew that one day that crowd was going to say, crucify him. And he knew that and felt that. He was familiar with suffering. This makes him the friend of sinners. He feels pain. There's nothing like it in the world when somebody feels your pain. It's game-changing. It's day-changing. It's life-changing. Somebody understands. If you hadn't if you're a guest here today, I've been going through a weird thing the past two months. It's the first time I've preached in nine weeks because I've just, I went through a, a thing in the hospital and when I came out, it just wasn't right in, I couldn't get my thinking right, my focus right, my equilibrium right. I had just torturous migraines and so I couldn't preach I, I hadn't even read a commentary, opened my computer in nine weeks until this week. And so I committed that I'd preach on Easter because I thought it would be like a good deadline for me. And so I've been trying to go in, the, in and out of the offices about four weeks now. Some days I make it a couple hours. Monday I had a great day. I made it a lot, took a couple naps in the office and then had a meeting that night. It was like, oh good, I'm better. Then Wednesday I come in and as soon as I walked in, noises were just killing me. And uh, I was just disoriented. I couldn't focus. And I was so frustrated. I got in my truck and drove home. I was embarrassed. And on the way home, I pulled over in an abandoned parking lot. And I just put my face in my hands. And I just, I prayed a little you know, rub my eyes a little, just trying to get my head to feel better. And I don't really know how long I was there. I, it's, it's, I don't know. But I think I was long enough there to scare one particular person. Because I was there, you know, facing my hands. I heard honk, honk. And I looked over and it was a, 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 a black postal worker in his, in his postal van. Pulled up really close to my car. Like I couldn't open my door. And he just looked with concern and gave me a, a thumbs up like, like, you stroking out, bro? <laughs> like, and then I knew I had scared him. And so I tried to get a smile. I went, I'm okay. And then this most beautiful, radiant smile all across his face. I, and I know he had a thousand things to do today, that day, deliveries and all that, but... But I know that God sent him, and I know that when his truck pulled up next to mine, he felt my pain and doesn't know me. 
people always ask, is Jesus black or white, brown? On Wednesday, I'd say he was black, <laughs> beautiful. Ah, he really loved me through that man. Changed the course of my week. Went home, told Lisa, cry. I cried. Told her, I said, I, said, I still don't feel very good. I said, but I, I know that Jesus feels my pain. He, he sent a guy, a guy to tell me that today. Show me that. Jesus is familiar with your suffering. Fourth way he suffered, he suffered from a brutal death. Jesus died by crucifixion. It was the preferred form of execution by the Romans. They borrowed that method by the Carthaginians. A Roman politician, Cicero, said, it's the most cruel and hideous form of torture man has invented. Rome loved crucifixion because it took so long for a victim to die and he suffered so much in his dying that it would send a message to the city or to the region because so many people would pass by as the victim was dying. Don't you ever rebel against the state because this will happen to you. It was a great way of keeping the Pax Romana, the peace, by way of threat. As you've probably heard on a number of occasions, crucifixion involves nailing a man's arms to a cross beam, attaching that to a vertical beam, and then dropping it in a, a hole in the ground. In Roman times, crucifixion was always preceded by scourging, where a man would be whipped normally 40 times, unmercifully to the point that his bones would be exposed. Jesus, there was a third addition to his suffering that before he could even get to trial, the guards decide he was guilty before proven innocent. And so they beat him unmercifully before his trial began while they were guarding him that night. This is why Isaiah described what Jesus looked like that day he was crucified. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form was marred beyond human likeness. If you would have been at the hill of Golgotha that day 2,000 years ago, you would have seen a bloody body nailed to a cross. And if your eyes would have scanned upward, you would have seen a face that was so swollen, it would have looked like a grotesque Halloween mask. But you would have known it was no mask because you would have heard how the guards beat him with sticks on the night before his trial after they had pressed thorns deep into his brow. And now standing at this picture of this, these remains of a man, you would not have known it was Jesus of Nazareth except for the words that he prayed when he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Isaiah 53 states four vital truths about that death. Number one, his death was voluntary. Isaiah 53, 7, and just pick up in this, these two verses, passages. 
the voluntary nature of it. He signed up for it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before her shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. He didn't resist. Then three chapters earlier, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Many Jewish scholars come to Isaiah 53 and say, oh, Isaiah 53 speaks of the nation of Israel. That's God's suffering servant, the people of Israel. No, it's not. Israel has suffered greatly through the years and God will judge her tormentors rightly. But Israel is not described in Isaiah 53 because that chapter describes one who chose to suffer volunteered to suffer when they did not have to suffer. That would be Jesus. The beautiful one in Isaiah 53 chose to endure suffering that could have been avoided. No one made Jesus die. He died out of love for you in this church today. In fact, on the night when the guards came to arrest him, Peter tried to stop the guards. Jesus stopped Peter. And when the guards asked, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I'm your man, they fell to the ground and fainted, and they were green berets. The Bible says that he was so powerful, he had within his body the power of 10,000 tornadoes. We've seen in Revelation, our study on Sunday morning, that every day he is worshipped by 100 million angels and he didn't even call on one of them to save him from suffering and he could have. Because he knew that if he ever ended his suffering on the cross, your suffering would never end in hell. His suffering was voluntary and his suffering was perfect. The prophet makes it very clear Jesus was not suffering for something he had done wrong. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, Isaiah 53, 9. In his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. It sounds so strange to talk about a perfect death. Oh, that was a perfect death. Well, the only way that works is if it was preceded by a perfect life. That's what made his death perfect. He was able to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for sins because he was innocent, blameless, not guilty of any wrong. I marvel at the innocence of Jesus and his infinite perfection as much as any other attribute of his life. I can't imagine what it's like to be a man and have never sinned, at least in your head mentally. I mean, he could have... Gone to the beach, he would have never lusted, never gone to a wrong place on a website, never reacted with improper words when insulted, never a bad thought, never a wrong motive. Even his own executioner testified of Jesus' innocence. Pilate said, Luke 23, 4, 
I find no basis for a charge against this man. Pilate knew it was all political. Trumped up charges. You know, when criminals were crucified in, in Roman times, their charges were, were put on a plaque above the criminal's head on the upper, above the crossbeam. Like, this is what they did wrong. Do you know what was put above Jesus, what the charges against Jesus were on that plaque? Matthew 27, 37, above his head, they placed this written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Well, he was. Jesus Christ died for telling the truth that I'm the king of the Jewish nation and I am the king of every human life in history and I am the king of every spiritual power in the universe. I'm the king. That's what he was guilty of. And as we are looking forward to, as we conclude our study in Revelation, one day God will look into the eyes of all pompous leaders and rebellious followers and declare to them, my son, whom you have rejected, is the king that I love and that I esteem. So when you think of Jesus on the cross, remember the sign above his head. He wasn't dying for crimes he committed. He was dying for crimes you committed, and that I committed, sins that we committed. He was dying for us. Third, his death was controlled. Very comforting to me, this part of the story. Things may have looked very much out of control that day. They tend to, uh, suffering, bad suffering, tend to look out of control. But in reality, even in Christ's death, God was making a statement that he was still in control, not circumstances, not people. And God made a statement about that in Isaiah 53. By making a statement about the very place in the cemetery where Jesus would be buried. Isaiah 53, 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich. Now, that's an odd verse. You read Isaiah 53, 9, you go, well, like, which is it? Because if you're assigned a grave with the wicked, it was a dishonorable death. But if you're assigned a grave and you lived an honorable life, then you get to be buried where rich people are buried. But Jesus got both because they accused him of all sorts of bad things and he, they crucified him between two wicked people, two thieves, so he looked like he was guilty and then God made sure that he was buried in a rich man's grave because God wanted to make a statement to all of the world, this is the most honorable man who has ever lived and I'm in charge of the, even the place where he's buried in the cemetery. So how'd God pull that off? Because 700 years before Christ died, God even predicted where Jesus would be buried. How do you pull it off? Well, just like God sent the postman to check on me this week, he sent a man named Joseph to check on Jesus' body after he died. Matthew 27, 57, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. A rich man. 
who had himself become a disciple of Jesus, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. Well, how about that? Jesus got buried with the rich because God said, I will decide. Not man, not Satan, not circumstances. I'll decide where my son is buried. To just let the whole world know I'm in control of this day that looks so out of control. Little did Joseph know of Arimathea know that day. He thought he was just burying a friend. He was fulfilling a 700-year-old prophecy that God had buried in the book of Isaiah. Fourth, his death was victor- vicarious. His death was vicarious. I know that's a big word for Easter morning, but as you grow to understand it, you'll love the significance of it. I'll start to explain it with an illustration. I grew up near Augusta, Georgia. Somebody told me that because of what I'm wearing today, that I, they thought I was setting this up for a story about the Masters. I got a better story than the Masters about me growing up near Augusta. Augusta is the home of Fort Gordon. I grew up there, and that, my, that was where I pastored for my first 10 years. And if you go to Fort Gordon, there's a monument there dedicated to private first class Milton Lee Olive III. At the age of 19, he found himself fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. On October 22nd, 1965, fighting was horrendous. The jungles were hot. The men were tired in his platoon. Automatic weapon fire was coming from all directions. And from out of nowhere, out of the dense jungle, a grenade came and landed right in the middle of his platoon. And without hesitating, Private First Class Milton Lee Olive III jumped on the grenade, pulled it to his chest, and cried out to all of his friends, I've got it, and absorbed the full blast of that hand grenade. And he died so they could live. That is vicarious suffering. When someone else suffers, so you don't have to. That's what the death of Jesus Christ is all about. He was judged by God, so we would not be judged by God. Clearly, that's the heart of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, that punishment was on him. And by his wounds, we're healed. We all like sheep, what we do? We went astray. Each of us has turned what? To our own way, do what we want to do. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. If you take a magnifying glass on a good hot summer day and capture the rays of the sun in that glass and focus it on a little piece of paper, if you do that long enough, you can generate enough heat from those those faceted rays, you cause that little piece of paper to burn a little bit, smoke and catch on fire. That's what happened at the cross 
God took all of the sins of, that are in this room today, all of the sins that are in this city, all of the sins that are in the nation and the state, all of the sins that are in all the countries of the world, times all of the centuries of history, and he poured them on Christ. All of the guilt and sin of the world on Christ in that moment. And that's what was so much of the suffering of Jesus. Way beyond the physical torture was the first time in his life he had felt guilt. It was our guilt absorbed into his body. He had never lied, but now he looked to the Father as if he were guilty of all the lies of the world. He had never committed adultery, but now he looked to God the Father as if he committed all the adulteries of the world. He had never committed murder, but now he looked like he was guilty of committing all the murders that have ever been committed. All of the sin of the world was on Christ. And that's what vicarious suffering, atoning suffering is all about. Him choosing to suffer so that we would not suffer. No one says it better than a professor I had at school years ago who said that his rejection leads to my acceptance. His wounding leads to my healing. His pain leads to my comfort. His humiliation leads to my dignity. He who was most innocent died as guilty that I who have been guilty might live as innocent. He who was truth died like a liar that I who have been a liar might know God's truth. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. He got what I deserve. When God finished placing all of the sins on Christ, the weight of the guilt was so heavy. It was the guilt of the world's sins that really caused his final breath to be taken from him. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Jesus was crushed by the wrath of God that we could be wrapped in the mercy of God. That crushing was so great that at one point it caused Jesus to doubt his father's presence. And you remember that cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, you've left me. And please don't miss this. Jesus Christ came to be the savior of the world. But when God was most using him, he did not look much like a savior and he did not feel like a savior. There are going to come times in your life when God is doing his greatest work in you and you will feel like God is not working in you and you may even feel like God is working against you. And that's when you need to remember Isaiah 53 and you need to learn from the cross and you need to learn what is true, which is not what you feel. Jesus did not feel like a savior. He did not look like a savior. Yet when he was dying, God was saving the world through him. How do we know that the crushing of Christ really did save us from our sins? because of what we came to celebrate today, the resurrection. 
Isaiah 53, 11. You're not going to find a lot of verses in the Old Testament about resurrection. It's just hinted at. Just hinted. But then fully explained in the New Testament. After the suffering of a soul, he will see the light of life. It's as clear as day. Even in Isaiah, the prophet says he will live again, this suffering one. And so you say, well, that's not enough for me. I don't know. That's really proof. Well, Paul picks up on this. Let me just read the rest of it so you'll know what I mean when I say Paul picks up on this. Let me read the whole verse. After the suffering of a soul, he will see the light of his life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Paul picked up on this in Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, which simply means he was raised to life so that God would be able to declare us not guilty. It doesn't mean you've never sinned. It doesn't mean you're not guilty of the life that you know you live. It's just that God says, I now see that Jesus has paid for all your guilt and I will never hold you accountable. I set you free from my condemnation and wrath. You're forgiven. You're justified. Leave the courtroom. There's nothing to see here because your sin has been paid for by Christ. Now all you have to decide today is are you going to believe this? That's, how, that's why Isaiah began his, his chapter with who's going to believe this? Who's going to believe this? Who's going to believe this? That's why God brought you to church today. Maybe for the first time in your life you're going to say I do believe. He was the son of God suffered for my sins rose from the grave because my guilt has been paid for at the cross. Jesus, I believe. I believe. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.